This is a heavy, or not a heavy passage, but a long passage. So you're going to have to bear with me, 28 verses. Um, We won't have it up on the screen, so you need to open your Bibles, your actual leather Bibles if you have them, or your phone Bible. We'll take that as a a bad second, but you know, it's fine. (laughs) Uh, It's 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 14, 1 through 28. I'll let you have a moment to turn there. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 28. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? How will you just be speaking into the air? Undoubtedly, There are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brother and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord." Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare." So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? 
When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab your seats. Well, good morning, everybody. Spend about an hour here and try to get you guys to the game by like the top of the fifth, which seems to be a sweet spot for the Padres right now. We especially need that today. Um, so we are deep diving our third value, the Holy Spirit. We have three values here at Neighbors Church that sort of govern all that we do. Simplicity, which we covered in our first session. Stillness, which I almost forgot just now. <laughs> and Spirit. And it's really important that you guys go back and listen to those first sessions because they really do create the framework for which we, um, in which we believe the Holy Spirit moves. And so we are spending about seven or eight weeks uh, deep diving a theology of the Holy Spirit, discussing who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, how he operates within his church. We've looked at how the Holy Spirit is the God who dwells among us and orders all of creation, orders the chaos. Last week we saw that he is the God who gifts us and animates us. Today and next week and maybe the following week, we're turning our Sunday mornings into a little mini seminary classroom. We're not going to be taking communion this morning. I literally want to teach some pretty heavy Bible exegesis, Bible teaching, Bible theology. And then we want to do Q&R, which is question and response, not question and answer, because there's no way in the world that I could answer these questions definitively. I'll give my best response. We're also going to turn Sunday mornings into a workshop, into a place where we actually practice these things. And so this morning, we hit the very uncontroversial topic within the church of tongues. How many of you are familiar with tongues, have heard about tongues? Man, when I came into the church as a brand new Christian, I was like, there are like, there are homeschoolers? What is that? That is crazy. And people speak in tongues? What have I gotten myself into? This is so weird. So with all that being said, I really want to prime the pump. We're going to pause here during our session this morning. It's going to be 20 or 30 minutes of lecture over the next few weeks, and then time for you to ask whatever questions you want. No questions are off limits. Again, I humbly propose that my response will be just nothing more than response upon which we can follow up with more details. Tongues and prophecy today, prophecy next week, tongues today, and then major heavy-hitting practice sessions over the next few weeks as well. Then we'll get on to hospitality, evangelism, and multiplication, the works that the Spirit does in and through us. Let me pray. Father, come. Holy Spirit, come. These topics have divided the church for centuries, but in these last days, I believe you are unifying your church. I believe you're unifying your church theologically. I believe you're unifying your church relationally, ethnically, economically. I believe we are on the cusp of a global renewal of the church in the West. Even this morning in pre-gathering prayer, there were words of shaking. The author of Hebrews would say that you will come and shake everything that is not of the kingdom. And so may we be humble servants, may we be sons and daughters this morning, and this topic of tongues, so confusing, so controversial, may it actually unite us even more as the body of Christ. And Father, in a day and age where there is so much controversy, so much polarization, so much pain, 
why would we spend time talking about some obscure gifting like tongues? And it is because we want to be open and available to you. We want to be the mini temple, the new Garden of Eden people, multiplying shalom and tov, peace and goodness in the world. Until your kingdom comes and the king reigns, may we, Lord, rule here on your behalf out of benevolence and kindness and goodness. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue declaring Jesus is Lord. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, why don't we start here with my own personal experience. My exposure to tongues began before I was a Christian. Most of you know this about my story. I was a little bit of a wild child, pretty heavy drinker, uh, drug experimenter, and I got myself into some pretty heavy-duty spaces and places I believe in the realm of the Spirit. I was a demonically oppressed kid by the time I finally became a Christian. I had done time in a psych ward, and there were moments, there are a few moments, I don't have memories of these moments, where my friends told me that in a blackout, I would speak in a different tongue. I don't remember these things. I do remember voices. My friends said that in these blackouts, I would do these freaky, weird things, like think full Harry Potter parcel tongue stuff, or Tolkien's dark speech. I do have vague, vague memories in those blackout drinking days of going into these moments where I realized something was taking over me, feeling something in my chest, feeling my body and my jaw moving, and watching people around me just staring, but not having any real sober recollection of what I was doing. Looking back on that, whether that was a demonic tongue or just a psychosis, I don't know. The doctors would tell me it was a drug-induced psychosis. My theology would tell me that there was something behind the scenes spiritual happening there. Fast forward now, I become a Christian, January 1st, 1998. I'm about three weeks old in the Lord. I'm reading the Bible now. I have no clue what any of this is. When I became a Christian, I didn't know what a pastor was. I was shocked that four guys had written about Jesus. I thought I had made the discovery of a lifetime when I realized that four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had written about Jesus. I remember telling everybody that I could, did you know four people wrote about this guy? It's absolutely amazing. I'm on my couch. It's evening time. I'm reading Thessalonians. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, what? in the world is a Thessalonian. What have I gotten myself into? Homeschooling and Thessalonians and all these strange things are happening and, and I love all these people that I would have never loved before and God, I'm so grateful to be sober right now. I'm so grateful to be saved and I just love you and next thing I know, I am speaking in a different language, completely sober, completely aware of where I am, completely knowing that something is coming out of my mouth that is not English, and I was having this moment of praise and adoration where I was in perfect control of my body, and I was just releasing myself to praise God in a tongue, and I did not know what was happening. I was just giving thanks, and I thought to myself, strangely, this sounds like a French person with a subtle Indian accent. <laughs> And that began my journey into the world of tongues. At the time, I was attending a, a very small little church with a bunch of little grandmas in Kimberly, Idaho. I remember going to the pastor, Steelman, and I remember telling Steelman, Steelman, I was reading Thessalonians Thursday night, and this is what happened. I wanted to thank God, and next thing I know, I began to sing, and I began to say these things, and next thing I know, it sounded like I was speaking in French, but with an Indian accent. It was totally crazy, and I was thanking God in like a different language. And Steelman said to me, oh, you need to be really careful. That may have been demonic. 
To which I responded literally, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I know demons. I know crazy head Dan. And I know whatever that was, was so gentle and so kind. And I was in perfect control. And no, thus began my journey into the world of tongues. Pause there and consider. What has been your experience with the gift of tongues? What do you think about it? What's your per- just ruminate here, write down questions that start coming to your mind as we're talking about these things, and we'll get to them here in just a moment. Now, Steelman is a dear brother. I haven't spoken with him in probably two decades. And out of a right heart and out of a deep belief in a particular form of theology, Steelman was trying to pastor me and protect me from what he considered to be wrong practice. A little bit of theology, many seminary room for us. There are two camps of Christianity, two camps of theology, when it comes to particular gifts that take different positions, and they claim to take those positions biblically. There are what we call cessationists, and Nyla, you can put those up now, cessationism. Cessationism is the belief that the miraculous gifts, such as divine healing, tongues, and prophecy, ceased, cessationism ceased to operate in the church after the apostolic age closed in the first century, or the canon of scripture was closed. There's a spectrum here within the cessationist camp, somewhere between the second to the fourth century's common era, or uh, AD, as we used to say. Then there's another camp who we would call continuationist. They believe that these gifts, all spiritual gifts, continued from the time of the apostles right up to this very moment, and they are still active today, and God continues to use them to build the church presently, in this present moment. Cessationism and continuationism. Steelman came from a cessationist background. Now, here's all I really want to say about this is I'd like you to consider what is your background with tongues? What is your background with prophecy? What is your background or your training, your biblical training with divine healing, because we all fall into one of these camps that's pretty straight down the line. And what I want to encourage us is that while I have deep, deep respect for my cessationist brothers and sisters, I actually understand the argumentation really well, I do not find the cessationist position as biblically compelling as a continuationist position for myself, personally. I also don't find it experientially my reality. I don't know what to do with the things that I've experienced, watched, and seen within myself and within the Christian community that directly would say, no, this gift has happened. We've had a literal healing of cancer in this church. And I I just don't know what to do with that because it happened. Doctor said it happened. It's confirmed. It literally happened. Micah's dad was healed. It is literally bonkers. And so continuationism for me personally is the more biblical, or I would say the more biblically, exegetically defensible place to find ourselves when it comes to these gifts and experientially. Now, what does that mean in a church plant like ours, where we have over here, uh, somebody who's been raised in a cessationist background, who when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, they're just like, I don't know what you are saying. All the way over here, we have folks in our church who are like, let's go, tongues right now, get on the floor, I'm going to pray for healing and prophesy over you, and wave a flag, and beat you up with a tambourine. Like, we've got the whole, we got the whole thing sitting within our community group, actually. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We honor the king, number one. 
Part of the problem that Paul was addressing in Corinth was spiritual pride. Theological spiritual pride. They were dividing over these gifts. And in particular, they were looking at the community. There were people within the community that had glossolalia, which is the Greek word for tongues. And they were looking at them like, whoa, they speak in different languages? They're super spiritual. And those guys that were up there, you know, speaking in tongues were like, look at us. We're super spiritual. Now you can go the reverse. Look at us. We're super spiritual. We're super biblical. We don't, we don't have an emotional faith. We don't allow these strange things to happen because we stick only to the Bible. But you're not really only sticking to the Bible consistently. So what are we to do? Cessationist, continuationist, especially in a church plant like ours. Number one, we are to recognize that we are brothers and sisters. There are consistent beliefs across the board between cessationists and continuationists. The nuances are small and they're detailed. When it comes to regeneration, that is being born again, justification, glorification, all the big I-O-N words of our grand theology, we all agree, cessationists and continuationists. We all agree on the death, resurrection, and burial, of, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We all agree on these things. Where we begin to divide is where did these gifts cease or continue to exist? So if you're a cessationist here, I would just invite you to consider, have I read consistently these texts? Or am I being challenged right now? If you're a continuationist here, I would invite you, am I reading the texts carefully and practicing these gifts in a way that would honor Paul and honor the biblical narrative? Does that make sense? Okay. Consider, how do you feel about this right now? How would you look at somebody that's different from you within this framework of the church? How would you relate to them? How would you love them? Would you think of yourself as less than? Would you think of yourself as more than? Those are points and places where you and I need to pause and say the king has died for us. The king has raised for us. How do we love one another? How do we care for one another? How do we support one another? And how do we learn for one another? When I get you guys into groups this week, we're actually going to ask, what does a cessationist position bring to benefit this community right now? And how does it burden it? What does a continuationist position bring to benefit this community right here? And how does it burden it? Okay. Write down your questions. Just a little more lecture here, a little more. Write them down. We're going to get to them. Cool? One of the questions that came up, we posted these online, and one of the questions that came up was, you mentioned sensationalism. What is that in reference to in this topic? And I think that that was just a mishearing of cessationalism. So, yes, okay. So cessationalism, uh, since, oh, no, 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 no. I'm losing it now. Ceasing cessationism. Cessationism is not sensationalism, but within continuationist perspectives, there can be sensationalism. Did that make sense? In other words, oftentimes the danger within the continuationist perspective is that they'll get very sensational. To which our cessationist brothers are like, chill out, man. You are like, That's not real what you're doing. It's very forced. It's very sensational. But, okay, we're moving on. Let's go. <laughs> tongues. Question number two that came in that I thought was really, you guys are smart folks asking these questions. Do you believe that tongues was an actual spoken language that can be understood and translated or that it is a heavenly language that one can understand, that no one can understand except for God. So what do you think tongues are was the question that came in. And the Bible says, yes, it is real. Yes, it is a real language. Yes, it is a heavenly language. And yes, it is a prayer language. Three categories of tongues that we have within the New Testament. Three categories of tongues that we have within the New Testament. Number one, angelic tongues. We just have to deal with this, folks. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love. 
there is some sort of heavenly language that Paul, the rabbi Paul, is reiterating. He is, he is acknowledging that there are tongues of angels, and he seems to intimate that there are those who might speak in those tongues at certain times while being animated by the Holy Spirit. We will get to purposes here in just a moment. Let's deal with categories. Category number two, so tongues of angels. Category number two, tongues are literal languages of the peoples. Now remember, this isn't an either or. Are they angelic or are they literal? They're both. They both exist in the New Testament, and we just have to let that be what it is. Categories of tongues, literal languages of the peoples. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read this very quickly. When the day of Pentecost came, from which we Pentecostals draw our name, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Pentecostals, charismatic, drawn from charismata, the expressions of these Holy Spirit events, they were all together. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Remember the temple indwelling? We talked about that in the dwelling and ordering session. Hey, Moses, how's it going, buddy? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, their God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Yeah, everybody's talking in different languages. Because each one heard their language being spoken. This is really important. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't, these all speaking Gal- aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? In the New Testament, we have a category of tongue that was a literal language from multiple tribes, tongues, and nations spoken at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Tongues are tongues of angels. Tongues are Spanish, Russian, Vietnamese. Whatever dialect you can come up with, the New Testament intimates that there are times when God's people are animated by the Holy Spirit speak in a literal language. Categories of tongues, number four. Private prayer language, or excuse me, number three, category of tongue, private prayer language. Paul says in verse two of 1 Corinthians 14, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. It's a private language wherein the speaker, indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit. They speak to God. And so as you work the text of 1 Corinthians 14, what you discover is that the gift of tongues in this category, not angels, not literal tongues, but this private prayer language, is something wherein the soul is animated by the Spirit. I believe this is what happened to me sitting on my couch reading about Thessalonians some 20 20 plus years ago, almost 25 years ago now, where you begin to speak to God, not to people. And Paul says, musterion, they're speaking mysteries, these things that are veiled but will be revealed at some point. These things that are hidden but will be known at some point. This is Paul's language around mysteries or musterion. And so this mystery is being uttered privately between God and this human being, uttering these things that are not known, sometimes even to the very human being who is uttering them. So then that begs the question, what in the world is the point of tongues? This is where our cessationist brethren and sisters would say, what is the point of this? What is the point of somebody speaking in an angelic tongue? What is the point of somebody speaking in a private prayer language? that nobody else can interpret or understand purposes. Let's get to it. Number one, when it comes to this private prayer language, Paul says that it is all about this personal edification, 
purpose number one of tongues is about personal edification. He says, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. I'm going to speak here experientially and anecdotally from my own personal life. I've been speaking in tongues now for 20, almost 25 years, practicing the gift, analyzing the gift, questioning the gift, wondering what in the world the point of the gift is, going circles with the gift a thousand times over. There is something in the supernatural for a tongue speaker, particularly this private prayer language, where there seems to be an internal release of all the conscious and mental and analytic awarenesses and faculties of the human experience. And you are just entering into a space, not a trance, not where you are without self-control, not where you are perf- not where you are not conscious of what is happening, but where you are from the deeps. Paul might be intimating at this in Romans chapter 8 where he says that the Spirit prays through us with groans and utterances that we can't translate in this life. There are things within, I believe, the Christian realm that require us to let go of our analysis, to let go of our ability to control. And so for the tongue speaker, for myself, over these 20 plus years now of speaking in tongues, I find that tongues is a place where I can go to find safe refuge. I don't know what to pray, or I'm overwhelmed with joy, or I don't have words, and I can enter into the tongue. And like anybody that learns a language, my early years of speaking in tongue were much like Babel. Now, if you were to ask my wife and my children who I have prayed over in this tongue, it sounds like a literal language. My wife would say it sounds like Hebrew. She actually asked a couple Hebrew speakers one time because she thought they were speaking the language that I speak when I pray in a tongue. But in those times of tongue praying, I am just privately praising my God, praying to my God, thanking him. As Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 14, I pray with my spirit and I pray with my mind, tongue, and then acknowledgement of maybe what's being prayed as an interpretation, and then praise, and then intercession. It's this process. It's this mixed cocktail of spirit and consciousness and analytics and unconsciousness, free flow, thanksgiving to God. Does that make sense? I'm glad to talk more about that privately with you guys, about my own personal experience. There are other tongue speakers in this community that you can also talk with. Purpose number two, praying with one spirit, which I already mentioned. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 15. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so now we're into that Christian... uh, It's not platonic-like splitting of soul and body here when Paul thinks this way. There's just no place for that within Christian theology. But he is referring to this immaterial part of the human existence with which we might pray, and we might pray animated by the Spirit in this private prayer language, which is a tongue. So what shall I do? He says, I'll pray with my spirit, but I also will pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Purpose number three. These tongues, and this refers now to the category of literal tongues, they are to declare the wonders of God's goodness to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Back to our story in Pentecost, at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 again, we read what? They were amazed. They were amazed, and they were saying, hey, these are all Galileans. 
How come they're all speaking in our language, Parthian, Mede, so on and so forth? We hear them, the last line there, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What does this mean? Peter then gets up and he says, what this means is that the promises of Joel are being fulfilled right now. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on all peoples, and this is the healing of the Tower of Babel. This is the healing of the Tower of Babel. This is when the kingdom comes, when the Spirit unites humanity. Languages will no longer be divided. We will all hear what? The wonders of God in Spanish, in English, in Vietnamese, in Chinese, in whatever language you can imagine. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Tower of Babel will be healed. And all will declare in a singular tongue, a literal language, Jesus is Lord. And so part and parcel of the purpose of this literal tongue is to declare the wonders of God and to forecast, to look forward to the future. That This is an in-breaking. This is a moment of what all the world will be one day, where all human language will be unified around praising God. Anecdotally, I have never had this happen to me. I have heard stories from people that I respect and love, people who have been in Russia, who have are not Russian speakers, and there they are in the middle of an evangelism moment, and suddenly this person begins to speak the dialect of the Russian, sharing the gospel with them. And that person responds saying, you are declaring the wonders of God in my language. How did you learn my language? Again, anecdotal. These are the stories. And friends, I am, I am cynical. I am, I am. I find myself constantly just, mm, well, I could probably deconstruct that, or this could happen, or that could happen. And sometimes that needs to happen, and sometimes I just need to be a little kid going, wow, God, wow, wow, okay, you can do that. Ooh, that's amazing. Some of you may have your own stories. Stop, consider. What do you think about these angelic tongues? What do you think about these prayer language tongues? What about these, these languages that declare the wonders of God that are pointing forward to the future? Fourth one, I need all of you to lean in. If you're checking the Padres game right now, I really need you to lean on this one. This is a big one. And this is where I think most churches and most teachers have screwed up the book of 1 Corinthians. The gift of tongues is a sign of judgment for unbelievers. Okay, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 14 very carefully right now. You're all good Bible students, little mini seminary classroom. Write down your questions. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written. Now, when Paul refers to the law here, he could be referring to Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, but most likely, like a rabbi, he's using law to encompass the Kitivim, the Nahavim, and the Torah. This is law, prophets, and wisdom books. It's shorthand. He's saying, in the Old Testament, He's saying in the law, in the Old Testament, it's written. Now he quotes Isaiah chapter 28. With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, not for believers to say, wow, God is so amazing. Whoa, God is awesome. Wow, that person speaks in tongues. The spirit is moving. No, Paul says tongues are a sign for, not for believers, but for unbelievers, They are a sign of judgment for unbelievers. I'm going to get to why here in just a moment. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Two weeks on prophecy next week. You guys are all leaned in really well this morning. When we get to prophecy next week, it's going to be fun. Because then everybody will be like, okay, I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm ready to go on this. This one's like, "Eh, I don't know. Sign of a judgment. What is Paul saying here? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is rebuking God's people for unbelief. Isaiah chapter 28. 
And Isaiah is warning the people that they are about to be taken off to Assyria, that they are going to be judged. And in Isaiah, chapter 28 in particular, there are these mockers and scorners who are saying, God this, God that. He doesn't see. He doesn't care. We can do what we want. And essentially, Isaiah says, when judgment comes, you're going to hear them speaking in a language that you don't understand. Assyrian, in the case of the Israelites, the ancient Israelites. And so as the Assyrians flooded into Jerusalem and conquered the peoples, the unbelieving Israelites, the sign of their judgment was a foreign language that they could not comprehend, and then they were brought off into exile. Did everybody track with that? Really want to make sure you guys, are, this is, we're into the deep weeds of good Bible reading here. Everybody got that? You leap forward to Rabbi Paul, and Paul says these gifts of tongues They are for the unbeliever who mocks and scorns because they will hear languages that they cannot comprehend and it will be a rebuke. It will be a warning sign just as the Assyrians came in and swept through Israel and took them off with foreign languages. So the unbeliever is judged because they cannot hear the goodness of God's grace and the goodness of God's mercy by these tongues being spoken. Did you guys, did did everybody connect with that as best as possible? Therefore, Paul says, these tongues, in some sense, when a community is practicing tongues and speaking in tongues in a wrong way, it actually becomes a sign of judgment to somebody who comes in and says, this is Christianity, blah, 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 blah. I don't understand a word you're saying. I'm out. And they walk out to judgment. Everybody tracking with that? Most people have never heard that kind of teaching around tongues. I don't know how this always gets missed in teachings on tongues. It's probably one of the most vital pieces of the teachings on tongues here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. All right, let's move on. We need to wrap this up. Proper use. Somebody asked in our online stuff, how to best equip and encourage members of the church to practice these gifts? How should the gifts of tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge be demonstrated in the services? So we're going to talk about prophecy next week, miraculous healing we've covered mostly. Um, So we'll hold on the prophecy piece until next week. But as far as tongues are concerned, what Paul was doing here was he was trying to establish order within the community on Sunday mornings and in these little house church movements. And for Paul, if you remember, our very first session on the Holy Spirit was he's the God who orders everything. When the Holy Spirit is moving, he brings order. And so Paul wanted order within the churches. When it comes to the proper use of tongues, if you have a private prayer language, use it privately all the time. Practice it. Develop it. Listen to the nuances of it. Play around with it like a little kid would learn new words. Develop the gift and pray privately continually. Paul says, I wish that all of you prayed in tongues. But I would rather that five words of prophecy be spoken over 10,000 words of tongues. More on that next week. But if you have a private prayer language, the primary place I believe in the New Testament community where tongues exist is for the personal individual to become that open conduit. For whatever reason, he chooses some to speak in tongues and some not. It's not a gift for everybody. Paul makes that clear at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In the public usage, I am going to again speak experientially. I have tried to force the speaking of tongues in public settings. Uh, Paul, he, he commands that there be interpretation. Um, do we have that slide on interpretation? Neither thanks. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at most. So let's take just our Sunday mornings, for example. If we were going to speak in tongues here out loud through a microphone, 
it would be one or two that would come, or three. They would speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. Now, there's a complex Greek thing happening here, very complex, and it's very uh, debated. Some would say that the text is saying there must be someone else to interpret the tongue if you're going to do it on a Sunday morning. So I speak in a tongue, and then one of you says, I have the interpretation, and you give that. The Greek text is a little more ambiguous. In fact, there are Greek scholars that would say the text is specifically saying not someone interprets, the one speaking in the tongue interprets right there. And I have experienced both. I can think of two or three times in my life where I've spoken publicly in tongues, and there has been a person outside of myself that translated, and absolutely, I analyzed the, I analyzed the, the crap out of it. I did. I was literally like, she probably just made that up because it was a moment, and it sounded really biblical, and it sounded really good. And then there's the little kid part of me that like, whoa, what if that is actually what the tongue was saying? I prayed that way, and it was interpreted. I would say for the most part, though, the sense I got from speaking in tongues publicly in smaller environments even than this was an awkwardness, an awkwardness, an uncomfortableness. It felt more like a sign of judgment than a sign of speaking in intimacy. But in the Corinthian church, you have to remember, they weren't Western moderns like us. They weren't scientific. Speaking in tongues was acknowledged around the Middle East as a, a supernatural gift of being a medium to something. And so they were very respected, and everybody wanted to speak in a tongue. And so what Paul was saying is when you come together on a Sunday morning or in your community group, if one of you has a tongue, which, by the way, you should. This is the next step in our group, in our Sunday mornings. You should be coming expecting, I will have something for somebody. It's not just me going to come and listen to Dan and Shua and do their thing, and then I'm going to leave. We want our Sunday mornings to be a space where we come together as a community saying, hey, the Spirit spoke to me about you this week, and I want to pray for you right now. We're going to open up time for that. I don't know if God the Holy Spirit is going to take us far enough down the road where one of you is like, hey, Dan, I have a tongue. May I speak it to you? And let's see if there's an interpretation. Or I have a tongue and an interpretation. I don't know. But where this would be primarily practiced, if we're going to press into this, if we're going to press into this, if you feel so inclined within your own community groups to experiment with this, to think about these things, would be within community group, a small group of 10 to 12 people where you can literally make mistakes, you can practice. And I think what's important about these practices with tongues is it's not like our Father is up there just waiting for somebody to, to speak a tongue, and then there's no interpretation, and God's like, all right, you're out. You're not saved anymore. <laughs> but that's the way we think about it. He's our Father. He's our Father. And so if we were to practice tongues, it would most likely be within community groups. It would most likely be two or three only, and there would be interpretation for it. That would be the ideal way for that to be practiced. I think I'm going to end it there. That's 30 minutes of lecture, and I'd like to just open this up and consider together what we're talking about here, reminding you that we have a whole spectrum. We have a whole spectrum. In this room, there is a spectrum of backgrounds, beliefs, theological systems. And so this is going to be our best attempt for us to get on the same page. I hope that you're able to hear from a charismatic and from a, uh, from a, from a cessationist these questions that are raised, and it will benefit us all. So who wants to be the brave one and ask a question? Who wants to open up with a question? We have more questions online as well, and so we'll get to those. Wes, why don't you start? No, no, you're fine. You can just, and I'll repeat the question. Oh, you can stand if you want to. Fantastic. 
So Wes acts from a cessationist position or a cessationist background, essentially, when it comes to the interpretation of tongue. Does it have to be a foreign tongue? Can somebody be saying something in English that's understood, the, the vocabulary is understood, the grammar is understood, but the actual meaning or application is not given? And so another within the community stands up and says, hey, let me reframe what he just said in English, and I'm going to expand on it or bullet point it a little bit, and everybody in the room goes, oh, that makes sense. Is that kind of your question around what we're saying here? Okay, so my, my response to that would be, I think what Paul would call that and what we would call that at Neighbors is a form of prophecy. It's a form of declaring clear, expound, uh, uh, ex expounded sections of God's teaching and God's word in particular, especially now that we have canon, especially now that we have ultimate authority. We are drawing through the Spirit and from the Spirit, applications, interpretations, and explanations that deepen the community's understanding. Paul's word here is build up or edify. And so when it comes to would I call that a translation of tongues, probably not. Because what Paul seems to be getting at here is he is saying, when somebody stands up and uses a language, be that angelic or private prayer or a literal language that the rest of the community cannot understand, it needs to be interpreted. It needs to be interpreted so it's not a sign of judgment on the unbelievers in the room, and it needs to be interpreted so it's a prophetic explanation or a prophetic exhortation to the hearing community that already believes. Great question. Uh, more could maybe be said, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. Next. Can you stand and give us your name? Denise. Denise the Charismatic, here we go. Yeah, let me reframe your question. Thank you, Denise. Denise asked from a classic charismatic, classic Pentecostal position, that camp would teach that a mark or a sign of being filled or baptized, baptized with the Holy Spirit is the proper language for the Pentecostals. The sign of that is then you begin to speak in tongues. And in the spectrum of Pentecostal families, there are those that would say, you're not even saved if you haven't been baptized in the Spirit. Okay, seminary, class, are we ready? Lean in. When it comes to the teachings of the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal world, there is what we call the second movements or the second baptisms of the Spirit. And so the Spirit, when you profess faith in Jesus, let's say you pray with Grandma when you're five years old, or you're 21 and your friend leads you to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, I make you my Lord. Christian theology teaches that in that moment you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are made brand new, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You are justified. You are on your way to being glorified, Romans chapter 5. John chapter 3, you are born again is the classic language. All of these things happen by faith. Whether you feel it, believe it, whether there's really any mark in the moment of that happening, when you profess faith, Pentecostals would say, and so would we, by the way, we would say all of these things happen. The ongoing fruit of that would be transformation, what we call sanctification. So you, you repent of this sin. You learn, you become more patient in this, a lifelong process. Cessationists believe that. Continuationists believe that. Charismatics believe that. everybody. If you're a Christian, that's St. That's Paul's language of if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not Christ's. Okay? Everybody got that foundation? Okay. 
The slice of the pie, the family tree we call Pentecostals would say, well, when we read the New Testament, there seems to be a second movement of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. They would point to Acts chapter 2 and other places, and they would say, it is necessary. Jesus said, wait for power to come upon you before you go and be my witnesses. They would teach, you have to have this second empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the mark of that would be speaking in tongues. I personally don't find that biblically compelling, but wait. Here's the nuance. What is very clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that the Spirit is present everywhere. He is the, uh, the governor and the guide of all things. He indwells the person by faith. He transforms us. He sanctifies us. But it's very clear in Old Testament and New Testament, as we've been teaching, that there are points and places where he manifests like air in a greater degree. So air is everywhere, and sometimes like a pneumatic tool, he will center in and he'll speak through the prophet Balaam. Or he will come upon Saul, and for some reason Saul will strip down naked and prophesy in tongues. It's weird stuff. We're not doing it. Nobody do that here. That's not, it's not Jesus. That's Old Testament stuff. Weird. Uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the old King James would be most literally translated, be ye continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Even St. Paul himself, who lays out a theology of justification, redemption, sanctification, glorification, all happening at one moment in the power of the Holy Spirit, commands the Ephesian church in this, in this Greek terminology to be continually being filled. In other words, there is some working that we are to be open to and available to, sometimes marked by tongues, sometimes marked by a unique gift of administration that flows through somebody. Sometimes you're sitting in, as we talked about last week, sometimes you're sitting in a meeting and you don't necessarily have the gift of wisdom. You're not known for being a, a super wise person. That's not what people think of you. But you're in the middle of a staff meeting or whatever at work and there's this problem and the this, this spirit manifests in you comes upon you and gives you a gift of wisdom in that moment to work through that problem. We wouldn't call that a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we would say that there is this interaction, this interplay that's more um, tangible. It's more palpable. It's like air. We're all breathing it right now. That's justification, sanctification, glorification, all that stuff that happens. And then it's like Hurricane Ian. You really feel that. When revival comes, when, when, when renewal comes in the history of revivals, what you see is that oftentimes these manifestations result in unbelievers crying out. Deep conviction of sin becomes more embodied and present and aware. And so there's a spectrum here. We would invite every member of the body of Christ to be, wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, more open to the Holy Spirit himself through the scriptures, pointing to Jesus to bring Jesus' lordship to your own soul and to all. Tongues may manifest in that, but they are not required. Tongues are not, requi tongues are not a sign of salvation either. Not everyone will speak in tongues. So Denise, did that sort of answer your question? Okay. Great. This is more difficult than I thought it would be, but let's just keep going. Yeah. If I understand what you're asking, Mel, you're asking, um, Paul says, I pray with my spirit, and then I pray with my understanding, and I had made mention that when I pray in tongues, it feels like a release of personal facility. So let me make sure that I put details on that. 
Um, I am in no way, shape, or form when I pray in tongues going into any sort of trance nor losing consciousness nor not completely aware of every bit of my faculties, mental, physical, and spiritual. Very, very aware. It's rather a yielding to the fact that I don't know what I'm saying in this moment. And that's the, that would be the most simple way of describing a, a release of my mental faculty. Mm-hmm. The analytic piece of me the philosophical, rational cynic will literally sit there as I pray in a tongue, and it usually starts with, what are you doing? (laughs) This is gibberish. It sounds silly. If somebody walks in, they're going to think you're very strange. That's sign of judgment stuff. And then I have to come back to the text over and over and find myself just yielding to the text and also reflecting on my own personal, um, yes, I'm just going to say it, my own personal experiential Christianity. There are points and places and times where I have felt, particularly in the early years of my Christianity, where I had no theology, none. It was literally like the Holy Spirit took a very, very demonized and tattered soul and just like swooped me up. It's, it's the only way I can describe what happened to me. I can't, I can't sit up here and give you chapter and verse. All I can tell you is that that first two or three years when the Lord was really beginning to heal my mind, and heal my soul, and bring me back to a place of like living in a space of reality, much of that was catapulted by me just sitting on the couch, praying in tongues, just letting go of all of the, for me it was a a terrible paranoia, and dealing with voices in my head, and I literally could only just sit there and be like, Father, I praise you, and then tongue. Father, I love you and I worship you. In Jesus' name, I resist whatever enemy is trying to take over, whatever enemy is trying to pursue me or trying to hold on to me, and then sing out in a tongue. And it was just this very childlike thing. And honestly, you guys, I'll be very frank. That was tamped down by the church. I thought what I was experiencing was normal Christianity. And so every time I went to tell some Christian, hey, the other night, I was praying, and I heard a voice, and it was like a thousand waterfalls. Like, it sounded like thunder and a thousand waterfalls. And it told me, I know. And they're looking at me like, dude, you got to get on medication. <laughs> and, and I was like, and then I come across it in the book of Revelation, the voice of God, a thousand thunders and a thousand waterfalls. And I'm like, no, it's right there. None of you ever hear that? Am I going crazy? And so there is a very, and for you analytics in the room, which is most of you, you're, most of you are postmodern rationalists, there is a level where you're going to be stuck in your head on this. I am. I am stuck in my head on this one. And I just keep running up. For me, my default position is always I submit to what the text says. If the text is clear to me, and I haven't been budged by, by very legitimate cessationist arguments. I respect those arguments, but I just have not found them as biblically compelling. Then I find myself at that rational moment conceding my adulthood <laughs> to my king and my father, saying, I'll be a child here for this moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recognize that I can't understand the eternal universe around me, much less the metaphysical and spiritual. You've given me this gift Nine times out of ten, when I pray in a tongue for 15 minutes, I'll walk away and the internal pressures of my body will be relieved and I'll be able to pray with more understanding. And that's just the way it works. Um, listen, it is, it's, we maybe have time for one or two more. So let's do one or two more questions and then we're going to have to wrap it up for the morning. Yeah. 
Thanks, Bethany. So the question is around the transfer of tongues or the giving of the gift of tongues, and then like somebody has the gift of healing, they lay hands on somebody, and they're given the gift of healing. We're getting into the mechanics of how the Holy Spirit wants to do things here. And the text just doesn't give us, here's how it works. Now, we do have an interesting phenomenon. Paul's very clear with young Timothy. Fan into flame the gift I gave you by the laying on of hands. There is something very clear in Jewish tradition that then translates and transmits over to the Christian traditions of the bestowing of authority through the laying on of hands. We have that starting in the Old Testament where Moses is, the spirit that's on Moses is given to 70, and then Joshua has hands laid on him, and Joshua becomes the successor to Moses in the same spirit. You have Elijah and Elisha, or Elisha and Elijah. I always forget the order. But there is that transfer of spirit that is given through the laying on of hands. Um, I think that what you're referring to where you have a fairly Pentecostal community and they're just desperate for everybody to speak in tongues. And I don't want to offend anybody, but I really don't know why. I don't know why, other than tongues is such a, such a mysterious enigma in the human mind. And so we immediately want to elevate it to something that it's not in the New Testament. And so, um, for example, my children went to a very Pentecostal school when we were in Seattle. And when they were little, you know, you'd have these teachers like just putting their hands on them and like just start... You know, trying to get them to do whatever. And, you know, my ki- some of my kids, I won't speak for them, but for the most part, they were like, yeah, I just felt, Ugh. I just don't think that's Jesus. I don't think that's the Holy Spirit. You ask the, the summary question, do you think it should be used more in private? You know, the jury's out for me on this one right now. I want to see us operating like the church in Corinth. Every, Corinth gets a bad rap. It was a frat party of a church. But let me tell you, they were alive. They were moving they were giving. Like, I'm in 2 Corinthians right now in my devotional time. The church was radical. In the middle of an urban hub, just like San Diego, sexually deviant, politically splintered, in the middle of the fall of the Roman Empire, and this little tiny community, probably at the time of the New Testament, when the New Testament was written, probably 50 or 60 people. Just think neighbor's church. And they ripped the city apart with Jesus. It's just incredible what happened there. And so I am, I personally am open to us beginning to experiment and practice in these small settings like this, you know, where there's a hundred of us or whatever, and learning to practice that. But I also am very aware of our spectrum here on Sunday mornings, and I don't want signs of judgment. I want unbelievers to become, if you're an unbeliever here, this, this whole session is so weird for you already, and I don't want to apologize to you. Just welcome to the world of the Bible and Christianity. I remember what this is like. It doesn't get any less weird. Just keep going. It stays weird forever. <laughs> um, and so I think practicing within small groups, I think within community groups is really cool, and the times where I've been most blessed by my personal use of tongues was praying over my children when they were little. They just loved it. They just loved it. And there's just something sweet in that because there's an innocence. There's, you don't have a late modern Western rationalizing and cynically taking apart your prayer. It's just, some, it's just your daughter just listening to you pray. It's beautiful. And I can see that unfolding within our communities where one of you is like, I want to practice praying in a tongue publicly. And then I want to interpret it. And the text lends itself to that. And uh, leaving ourselves there, that's, that's where I think it's most healthily practiced. Let's close it one more. Rich. Well, I hope to. 
Rich's question is, are we going to go by the text? And I, I hope that today, as, as best as possible, and it's my most humble attempt to work through 1 Corinthians 14 and every text of the Bible, including the Gospels. So even Jesus' admonition to his disciples to not babble among themselves, in particular there, he's referring to the repetitive pagan practice of cutting oneself and slicing and just begging God over and over and over and, and Jesus' response. And he's actually speaking about using a language that's hearable by the rest of the people. And he's telling them, when you pray, your father knows what you need. And Rich, actually, to repeat what he said so everybody can hear, I just want to commend you. We need more Christians in their 50s, 60s, and 70s saying, these last years, this, this, the back 40, you know, the back nine for me, I want to go all in. It's men like you, it's men like Dr. Brashears, who open up this world for this next generation of the church to say, we never stop proceeding, going forth. Is it challenging? You bet. And the older we get, the more our systems stabilize us. And Jesus comes along and he says, I, Dan, love your cute little theological system. <laughs> and uh, he, he just kind of, he has sent my theological systems over and over and over for me to assure you. And the longer you get to know me and my wife and, and this community, you'll, you'll find that there won't be things said that I won't just be able to open up chapter and verse and say, here's where I'm drawing this from. Here's the interpretation. Here's why. Here's the other positions. I mean, I hope to be able to do that. And so um, also well done acknowledging that we all have these passages, whether it's 1 Corinthians 14, for some of us in the room, I'm going to drop like Romans 9. And right now you're like, yeah, what about Romans 9? And that's a whole different category. And, and some of us are like, yeah, what about the book of Joshua where like God tells him to go kill a bunch of people. What is that? Like we all have these passages that we're just like, ah, and they are not to be avoided. Where you find resistance is where you're going to be transformed. Not where you resonate, not where you're like, oh, gentle and humble and lowly and give me rest for my soul. So resonant. No, like the hard stuff where you're like, what is this? It does not make sense. Why am I resisting this? This is where the Spirit is putting you into the spiritual gymnasium, so to speak, and saying, I want to train you. I want to grow you. And Rich, for men like you, I'm, I'm round in the corner here. I want, I told my wife the other day, I want to be like Dr. Bashir's. I want to be 85 and aware, aware of what all them kids are thinking these days. But not with like, uh, not with like, uh, you don't get it. You are the church. You are, you are our last hope here kiddos. I don't say that patronizingly. I say that to you to don the mantle of responsibility that you bear as the next generation of the church. And be humble, you know. Yield to your elders. There's reasons that we as elders find ourselves saying, hey, chill a little bit. Let's make sure that we check and balance this. We need each other. The whole church needs each other. Cessationists, continuationists, old, young, black, white, you get the gist. Let's all stand. We're going to worship Next week, prophecy and practice. Seminary classroom, and then we're going to practice. We're going to practice some of these things. If you'd like more prayer around tongues or whatever, you can come talk with me or my wife. Father, uh, as best we can, we want to respond to what you've given us in scriptures. And for some of us, it's very uncomfortable. For some of us, it's very exciting. But we just open ourselves to you. 
We open ourselves to your work, to your manifestation, to your wind blowing. Dove, come. Water, rivers of living water from deep within us, from our innermost being. Tongues of fire upon us. Presence, your presence. Your work in and through us in this world to manifest your kingdom. And so I pray, God, that you would just move in our church, bring salvation, make disciples who are radically committed to you and available for risk, ready to grow. We exalt you and we trust you in Jesus' name.